This is a conversation with my LinkedIn friend, and I surprisingly have a few of those. Dava, who is a recruiter in the Portland metro area. We taped this maybe two weeks ago, so before all the political stuff happening in Portland right now, hence we're not going to cover any of that. However, this is still pretty interesting, and we talk about dance moms. She is one. Competitive motherhood, the future of recruiting, communication styles, and what type of candidate or employee might excel because of COVID paradigm shifts. There's also two stories about low ponytails and excessive Miller Lite consumption in here as well. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. a lot of shit um it's it's interesting because in the employment world hr most recruiters especially corporate recruiters even though they're in hr they don't see themselves as part of hr they don't like hr right i've always wondered why we don't split out H uh, recruiting as more like business development and i've seen that at one places but like if you want to say that people are your greatest asset which is a common refrain then like shouldn't it be considered an aspect of business development like why do you see it as quote-unquote needing to be within hr well and i i don't i mean one of my mentors um she has been in recruiting for god 40 years okay And she actually was a corporate recruiter for the company that invented the debit card. She personally assembled the team that developed it. Oh, wow. And um, what's interesting about it is back in the day, as a corporate recruiter, back before it was really a thing, she wasn't part of HR. It It was a function that reported directly into the CEO. Um, huh. so I, I think because corporate HR, um, really took off with the concept of corporate recruiting, um, right around the time of the rise of the online applicant, because right. it was a defense mechanism. So it just naturally fell to that. Um, so I think you've heard me see on San LinkedIn before that, you know, we, we have a situation in which we're using hiring practices developed by baby boomers on platforms designed by generation X to recruit the largest segment of our workforce, which is millennials. Yeah, and, I've seen that like three times, and it's like one of the greatest things that you've, I don't know if you stole it or if it's an original, but it's, it's one of the better things that you've concocted, you know? It was something I concocted. I was given a 10-minute talk over lunch one day, and I was just talking about the history of recruiting, completely biased, completely from my perspective. I started in 1999. And, um, and I was talking about the frustration because it used to be that you would get like 25 applicants, they'd all come in, they'd have neat handwriting, you know, the receptionist would, you know, look over, look you over. And if you passed muster and treated, you know, her or him nice, they'd go get the hiring manager. And if the hiring manager liked your handshake, you came back two days later and you got an interview and they only had to do that 25 times unless you were like in LA, right? Right, right. And you only had to do that five or six times and then you would get a job. Well, when, you know, Monster released this Super Bowl commercial when they went from the monsterboard.com to monster.com. And this was like part of the talk I was giving literally as a third party recruiter, 
I was recruiting construction at the time. And every day I would type in the words construction on monster board and get like two new national resumes a day. Overnight, you get 200, 300, and then suddenly a thousand off one word. So then we had to start using keyword searches and we had to start creating these defensive mechanisms. Well, then the same thing happened to the employers. And so how do they deal with that? They got applicant tracking systems and applicant tracking systems. The keyword algorithms really, really started getting functional in the last five years. Right. Over five years ago, they weren't functional. They were just more of a myth. Um, they were really only used at places like, you know, like Boeing or Crest or whatever. Um, so now we have like this keyword algorithm and, and now we, we just have these people playing games, communication games. It's like, you know, they're embedding every single word from the job description, you know, or if you put both BS and bachelors of science, you get two points and it runs your thing up and it's just, it's just a nightmare. And it's like, I think there's like an Albert Einstein quote, I'm pretty sure it is. Basically, you can't use the same kind of thinking that got you in the mess to get you out of the mess. Right. And I agree. that's exactly what we're doing right now. And I'm like, holy crap. It's- Would you say for like an average job seeker, like mid-sized to enterprise, white collar, would you say that pretty much like your best bet is like knowing people or just like trying to foster relationships at different places you land so that maybe like somebody rabbis you at another place or whatever. Cause I can't see, I think maybe in my life I've gotten one W2 through a, like an ATS type process. Right. See, like and for me it's been like, like somebody. Huh. Yeah, almost so, every single job I got, I got on my own merit and I applied. So um, I've gotten interviews from referrals um, and I can think of one distinct job I got from a referral, but everything else I was like, you know, they got my information cold turkey. Man, that's cool. I've, uh, yeah, I've been the inverse of that. Yeah. I feel like mine is all like referral type driven, right? Um, right. And that is really common. The flaw with referral driven, though, is if you're looking to expand your culture and you're looking to bring new ideas and birds of a feather, you know, we flock together. Right. And um, is so and it's if you're having a problem with one type of employee and you hire three of their friends, guess what you're going to get? Right. right. Um, now, most companies do have a high referral rate, um, and I've heard it be referred to as FBI's, friend, brothers, and in-laws. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, so, uh, um, yeah. I have two I have two quick ones about that. Yeah. Um, two years ago, I went to this, like, recruiting trade show thing in Atlanta, and because Home Depot corporate is in Atlanta, there were probably 20 people from TA – uh, for Home Depot, and I would say it's like 18 women, two guys. It's like pretty heavily skewed, like maybe early 40-something women, some like 24-year-olds or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's one woman at my table. She was like, um, she had been put in charge of this executive referral program, um, and she was like, it's slowly killing me and like stripping me of my sanity, and. <laughs> She told me that, 
they had mandated that anybody that comes in through executive referral, which I think is like SVP and above, which in Home Depot, I think is only like 18 people or something. But if you come in through executive referral, you have to get an interview. So uh, it doesn't have to be with the hiring manager, but you at least need to get a screen with the recruiter, right? But usually it has to advance to the hiring manager or there'll be a blowback. But right. she was like, you got these guys who their daughter is going to University of North Carolina or something, and they're, like, dating some baseball player. And the guy's like, hey, can I put this baseball player in for this, like, IT manager role? <laughs> it's right. like, well, has he ever done that? And it's like, oh, no, he hasn't. But you still got to force it through, right? Right, so, right. Uh, <laughs> So that was one thing that I always think about with that FBI uh, concept is uh, is that is that just like people are like that. And then the other one I was going to say is I worked for the cybersecurity company for like about eight, nine months a couple years ago. I was 1099, but they invited me to this baseball game and there was this guy who was like we had a suite and there were probably 25 people there. And there was this guy who was like a really high sales performer and he probably had like 12 to 15 Miller lights during this game, just like pounding Miller light. And like, as this was happening, a lot of the people in recruiting for that org were talking about how he had given them all these referrals for open roles and I was just like, oh, man, like, you're just perpetuating this type of culture, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I see stuff like that all the time, and it makes me scratch my head about, like, conceptually. I mean, I understand the power of, like, in-group and out-group and everything. So it's yeah, a, the, the from problem, brain perspective. Well, I, I talk about, like, the Trader Joe's versus Safeway analogy all the time. Like, Trader right. Joe's has 4,000 items on their shelves, and Safeway has 38,000, right? Mm -hmm. And so we actually spend more money at Trader Joe's because we have less options. Right. And right. from a recruiting analogy, it's the same way. So what happens is, is when we get completely overwhelmed, we go to what we know. What we know is... I've got a 23-year-old who just graduated college and he's got a frat brother or she's got a sorority sister or whatever, and this person is super smart, so I'm going to hire them and just train them anyway. So they'll go from, I need someone to hit the ground running to, I'm just going to hire a known, just a known quantity, whether or not they're going to be functional is completely separate. They're already sold on the concept of I can train someone who's smart, which, you know, you know, three weeks before five, you know, before they got 500 applications and were overwhelmed, they didn't have time to train. And yeah. I've seen that play out several times. What do you think about the, what do you think about the jump from like recruitment process, hiring process, offer letter to onboarding. Cause I always feel like that's super sloppy at places I've seen or contracted and you know, onboarding is. contracts is even worse, but like uh, even a W2, I just feel like people spend so much effort in the hiring process and so much time and money is consumed. And then it's like, well, like hit the ground running. <laughs> 
Right. And I, well, number one, I, I don't believe in that concept. Um, and, um, I, I know that what I started doing in my sales process for recruiting a long time ago mm-hmm. is I would start selling people on the problems that we hadn't yet solved and oh, yeah. the, the problems with the company. And it sounds really weird, but when people know what the known quantity of the issues are, they come in either ready to deal with them or they come in with a solution for them. Right. And um, I literally wrote out a website, a recruiting website once for a company I worked for where in a and I said, you're going to get a lot of interruptions from the higher ups during the day. And if you know anything about accountants, they hate interruptions. Yep. But I put that on the website. So our accountant application level dropped. But the people that were applying, they actually were like they knew it. Right. And they, they understood. were fine with it. And it wasn't a surprise as a result of day one. Uh, the other thing we did with that company is we created uh, we used uh, an LMS, a learning management system. And we actually recorded like the general manager talking. We recorded the CEO telling stories and we animated it all. I hired a marketing intern and bought an animation program and she spent the summer animating and throwing things into Prezi and We just really slowed down the process of getting somebody on board and we want them to know the company history because the nuance comes out in company meetings, but I can't pull the owner of the company into every meeting, but I could lock them in a file room for 30 minutes to just talk into a microphone and then we just edited it down to like 20 minutes, took out all his ums and whatever else. Right. The thing is- That's a good idea. And I wish yeah. more people would do that, even with uh, I came across like a couple software things in the last few years where they make it easy to like turn job descriptions into something more than the standard. And right. even if you just have an right. audio file of a hiring manager describing a role and what it does on the team, how, where it could evolve to. Most people, just by the tenor of the person's voice, can tell, like, okay, this role is super relevant and maybe it has growth potential or this role is like a task monkey role, right? So that Prezi thing is a great idea, though. I mean, I wish more people would do that. Did you get, um, did you get like, negative feedback or brushback? No, I had sales. Yeah, because we also we not only did we do that for onboarding, we created a three week interactive sales process. Okay. And what was nice about it is I was pulling in like um, Seth Godin videos, mm-hmm. and uh, there is a podcast called Cut the Crap with Ryan Caligulari or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think I've um, heard of that. And so uh, he did a great podcast on one of the best sales books I think that's ever been written called The Challenger Sale. But like mm-hmm. trying to get new salespeople to read the book is ridiculous. But if they can get the eight golden nuggets in 45 minutes, great, right? Right. So we implemented all these podcasts and videos into it to really keep the motivational strategy up, but to really slow down the learning process. Because before that, it was just PowerPoints and it was supposed to be done over three weeks and they'd all buzz through it in four days. And then they were completely incompetent at the end. Right. Right. So when we slowed it down to the actual three weeks where they had tasks and quiz they had to follow through on and they were made to go have conversations and report back on the conversations or they were made to go shadow and report back on the shadowing into the database. I literally had salespeople come up to me and said, I wish I was trained with that. Yeah. Yeah. because the, the entire time we, we wanted them to spend three weeks learning before we cut them loose on the phone. We didn't 
we wanted that to be a value added time. So, you know, I think I ran the numbers on it and I think it was including the intern that I hired for the summer to help me assemble it and Mm -hmm. um, how many hours I had my assistant working on it and mine. I think we all in all, we spent way less than $20,000 in three months of creating this package. Right. And what's the overall value? I mean, even if it's not, 100% 100% calculable it's still significantly higher than 20k you know right right when you can have people that are making six figures in under 18 months yeah right. so and that's my thing is it's like recruiting it starts from I know you hate it you know about the rah-rahs on the website but it goes beyond the rah-rah it goes it goes to the nuance of how do values play themselves out how yep. does department like what kind of music does this department listen to nobody right. talks about that on nobody website. ever mentions and every career page is the same like right. happy or photos baseball game photos what and that's great and it has its place but the problem is is i agree with you is like you start and it's like okay even i had a job once and like this never comes up either but it's super important there are some jobs where people are big like uh chit chat in the morning people when you're in the same location and like everybody says hello and they want to like shoot the shit about whatever and then there are some places where people like come in go to their desk start with whatever their stuff is you know and like that's a huge cultural thing right and it's that type of stuff never acknowledged it's like it's always the same template of like this is what our culture is like we fit it into these boxes that you understand but it's like no man it's so much more than that and i've always thought too like i think we say this in every article and video about this stuff but it is true is like culture is also like what's permissible from the top you know it's like that's like what ultimately kind of is it's like it's almost like what you can get away with. And then there's another uh, degree at your level where it's like what the interpersonal relationships are formulated around, whether it's like music or like talking about what people brought for lunch or Netflix or whatever, you know? Yeah. And we actually yeah. like companies I worked at, we had an extrovert on the accounting team. So we actually pulled her out of the accounting department and put her in the middle of the sales floor. Oh, yeah, that's cool. You know, it was like, well, they're going to be chit-chatting all day. She needs to be around that kind of interaction. She doesn't flourish in a quiet environment. So, you know, and the added bonus for her was in her particular job in accounting, she was also closer to the people she had to have questions answered by. Right. So, you know, companies really need to look at getting outside of these, like, centralized department values and look at how people communicate. And we didn't lose any communication strategy by taking her out of the accounting department we won communication strategy because we put her in an environment where she needed interaction and she got it yeah and and nobody's production went down because there was an accountant sitting between three salespeople and a logistics manager right it's actually probably for the best in some ways you know um because have you ever heard that like i want to say it's like carpenter skateboarder and some other thing it might be accountant it's like if you give if you bring like three completely disparate people together 
and you tell the accountant like here's the problems the skateboarder is facing in terms of like the ramp and you tell the skateboarder like here's the problem the accountant is facing and you give them like a base level of knowledge right just not even expertise the person that's completely outside the sphere comes up with more novel solutions or approaches to what needs to be done because they're outside of it right right that's even a case for like moving around seating in general um or just like shifting how you think about people and like silos and stuff, because keeping like people cloistered together like that is, I understand it makes sense from a brain standpoint and just like, we've always done it this way, but it's, I don't really think it's like good for new ideas or innovation coming to the fore, you know? Right. Yeah, it's not. And that's the problem is it's, um, I, I've talked about, you know, it's, you know, if you want new ideas, you can't ask somebody to develop new ideas using the parameters of best practices. Right. hundred percent. And um, you have to be willing to look at like, well, if this is going to work, you know, because the best practice just means that it worked for somebody else and then somebody else duplicated it and somebody else duplicated it. Yep. And there's times like on this contract I'm working on right now, I'll flat out say this is a best practice that works for these reasons. And this is the best practice, but here's some alternatives that still legally satisfy our requirements. I mean, and (laughs) I wish more people would approach it that way, but we get, we, you know, all hail the best practice. And then, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. So let me do a personal pivot on that. Because okay. I did want to talk about the dance mom type experience. <laughs> so give me some best practices in that area or stuff you've learned um, from those experiences in your life, too. So I guess, like, motherhood broadly, um, yeah. I've interviewed a bunch of women, and obviously it's a huge deal, and they uh, usually talk – I would say the more realistic people – talk about it in very positive terms, but are also like, sometimes it's a complete uh, bitch, you know, for right. which I would assume would be the logical answer. So I guess two pronged, like at a 35,000 foot level, kind of like, do, were there like concrete, tangible ways that you felt like motherhood changed you like initially and then over time? And then I do want to get into a little bit of like what that dance mom ecosystem is like, because I don't know anything about that. Yeah. So the motherhood thing um, for me, I used to be a very auditory person. Like Mm -hmm. if I was in a meeting and I missed something, I could almost play it back in my head like a recording and get caught up. It was really weird. Like I had this really strong auditory sense. Um, But that went away. Um, so starting about three months of pregnancy till about 18 months postpartum, my brain was scrambled eggs. And then I was playing a game with my cousin online one day and I recognized that, oh, hey, she's played this exact word before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, my brain's coming back. You know, it was like so cool. Um, but it's the the motherhood thing has given me a different way of relating to people who have who have issues, uh, but it also gives me a little less patience for people sometimes because, you know, right. I, hear, I tell my daughter, like she'll come to, you know, my room and you know my office and she's like, where is my dance leotard? And I'm like, I didn't help you put your laundry away. 
So why would I know where it is? Oh, you know, it's so there's definitely a matter of a fact thing that I have a different way of talking to people like that now where it's like, you know, and because like the catchphrase between us and the household now is you're capable. Um, I definitely have a different look on capability with my employees. Uh, but then if the dance mom thing started, she was begging for a couple of years for ballet. And I was like, you know, my my kids got a little ADHD going on and. So I wasn't sure, but finally, you know, she stuck with it for a couple of years. So we threw her in a ballet class. She loved it, you know, and she was, she was okay at it. And so then the next year we put her in ballet and lyrical and, you know, she, she loved it again. I talked her out of tap because I didn't want to hear the noise in the house. And then the next year she said, I want to do dance team. And I'm like, Oh dear God. (laughs) So we shot from two classes a week to five classes with five mandatory competitions a year and two nights of, you know, um, two nights of recitals and then COVID hit. So I had all this money that went out the door that we didn't get a dance competition for. Right. Not even like a virtual equivalent. There was a couple virtual equivalents, but given the nature of trying to work from home, keep my kid homeschooling like online and then take dance classes online, there were just some things that we just, I just couldn't execute on as a parent. And I remember talking to the owner of the dance studio and I was not alone in that. Um, So we, um, she is going to try out uh, next week for dance team again um, going into this year. We don't know what that's going to look like. I have credits now rolling into next year from all the money that went out. So dance team has taught me a few things like people that are artistic, they don't have a linear way of thinking. So I've had to learn how to get information inside a nonlinear way of sending out emails and communication, which, you know, I teach everybody, you know, introductory paragraph, three to five bullet points, closing paragraph, let them ask you questions, more than three emails, pick up the phone and talk to them or go to their desk and talk to them, right? That's like, that is a grounded strategy I teach everybody. And um, you can't do that with a dance studio owner. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So it's really, it boils down to learning to read between the lines, reading it six or seven times, figuring out what doesn't really contradict itself and then writing out a check or handing them your credit card. And that's- do you see do you see instances of quote unquote competitive motherhood within that dance world? Because I feel like the stereotype sometimes more on the competition level, but do you see people like going crazy over that stuff sometimes? Um I no. Thank okay. Um I'm in though I am in a suburb in Oregon. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm finding most parents are along for the ride. Okay. Um, and are you guys near Portland or elsewhere? Uh, I'm about 15 miles south of Portland. Okay, cool. And I happen to live in a city that is so small here, 15 miles south of Portland. Most people go, where is that? And then I have to say, well, it's between this one and this one. They go, oh, okay. Right. Um, or it used to be a 55 and up community before they lifted the age restriction probably 30 years ago, but people still think, well, you're not old enough to live there. And it's like, we have an elementary school here. Um, so, you know, it's, pe- people just don't see that. Um, anyway, so 
I find that most of the parents, we're, we're all just along for the ride. It's, you know, we celebrate when it's not the middle split low ponytail because that's the biggest pain in the ass there is. Right. It's, we want the side ponytail, the high ponytail, a high bun. Like we can all execute on that. The second you get the middle split low ponytail, that is like gel and hairspray overload. Um, you know, but it's, it's interesting I remember early on in motherhood watching toddlers and tiaras. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I've watched I some would, of those. Right, and I would watch it with the intent of no matter what I do to screw up my kid, I cannot screw up my kid as bad as these people do. And um, I can tell you in the world of dance, what's really cool about our studio is parents are not allowed backstage. Um, they're oh, that's like, good. Yeah, they're like, if you want to come backstage, your kid forfeits the right to perform. And um, that's really good. And, you know, they've got four and five year olds back there and they'll have a couple of moms that are like specifically aligned with the dance studio and committed to be back there to help them. But they're like, we are teaching your kids how to be independent. We're teaching the older girls how to be mentors and we can't have you backstage because it it ruins the groove. (laughs) So, um so I really, I really like that. And it was, my daughter was considering dropping out of dance this last year. I'm like, you can't, you sign, like you had to sign the form. You had to initial, this you can your team down, too. you know? Yeah, that's big too. Cause I feel like that was something that I talk about with like guy friends of mine sometimes is a big parental dividing line is kind of like, um, forcing you to stay within commitments right um which is actually it can feel like a dick move at the time um as a parent but it's like i think in the grand scheme of things it's super important like i have a friend who is a lawyer for doj like federal lawyer and he's pretty well adjusted kid in general but uh he talks about that all the time where he's like man my parents force me uh to stay in all this stuff that i didn't really want to stay in but i find it you know and he's like that i think he's like that impacts my own parenting and even like professional context right like how you view like accountability and commitment and it's all obviously like a quilt sewn together of your life experiences you know right and and to be no, clear, that. I wasn't going to make her go into the next season. She just had to complete the season. Right. Right. She signed in, man. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, so would you say, like, um, uh, this is, like, a bigger question, so you don't have to have some other worldly answer for it. But um, in addition to, like, being a mom, let's say, like, last 10, 15 years or whatever, do you – do you have kind of things that when you were younger, you like took for granted or didn't think about or realize as much? It could be either personal or professional. I mean, you've talked a little bit about like communication style, which I think um, is a big deal that you kind of evolve your thinking on as you get older. Yeah. But are there, um, are there any things that like uh, just off the top of your head jump out to you? Like when you were, 15 years younger you never conceptualized or thought about and then as you uh went through work and personal development you're like oh crap that's a bigger thing i need to think about you know yeah i guess for me the first thing that jumps out at me is because i'm a military brat and my dad oh really 
like, yeah, he'd have like a month of vacation a year. And so we'd take like a two week summer vacation. And sometimes we take a one or two week winter vacation is looking back. Now I realize my parents spent an inordinate amount of money to make sure that we had good vacations. Um, so like if we were going to California from South Dakota, cause that's, you know, where we were stationed for most of his military career, um, we wouldn't go there in one or two days. We'd take four or five days to get there, four or five days while we were there, and then four or five days to get back. Uh, my parents had hard and fast rules about not being in the car for more than four hours a day and taking as many breaks as possible to see the sights and to read the monuments and look at things and eat ice cream. And so looking back, it's... Um, I haven't been able to provide that same type of experience for my daughter just because we have a different lifestyle. Right. Um, but there's certainly an appreciation for how much expense they would put into that because maybe once we got to where we were going in California, we were staying with family, but that was four nights going and four nights coming that we stayed in a hotel. Yeah. You know, that's four days going, four days coming that we ate out three meals a day. Right. Um, so it's, it's little things like that. Um, and I remember talking to my mom some years ago about, wow, vacations are expensive. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 So, uh, so there's definitely an appreciation for that. And then, you know, as I've talked to my dad, you know, I reference my dad a lot when I talk about leadership, because when I was a teenager, my dad and I, because he was a military officer, we talked a lot about mil uh, military leadership theory um, because he planned wars and stuff. So he was, you know, he was doing tactical stuff, studying civil wars, studying battle plans from other things all over the world. And, you know, naturally leadership theory comes up. And so it's really interesting that I've had this, you know, this relationship with my father that even a couple of months ago, you know, I was talking to him and we were talking about what it really means to mentor a person and how mentoring is actually more important to your leadership development uh, because it triggers another category of learning for you. And a lot of people don't see that they're hiding behind the, I need to hire someone who's going to hit the ground running or they hide behind, believe it or not, in a false humility. I'm going to hire a person at a lower level than me that knows more than me so I can learn from them. Right. And that's stupid. What you need to do is if you find yourself in one of those two patterns of thinking, you need to hire someone who can execute on the soft skills and teach them the hard skills. And then because they're younger or they're less experienced or they're pivoting in their career, wherever they are, they're going to bring ideas to you that you never even considered. That's going to, in fact, mentor you to a larger way of doing things and give you a larger perspective while still training this person on how to do their job really well. So it becomes a really mutual relationship, but it's not going to become this mutual relationship of this person's going to help me in my career. And it's not that you've got this little bubbling protege. It becomes this mutual respect where you're training them in the XYZs and they're giving you new ways of thinking about something and new ways of processes or whatever. And so I remember, you know, just like I said, recently, my dad and I were talking about that, that it's like, at what point, like, if you truly want to be great, you need to take on that green person and make them greater than you. And yep. when they come greater than like my myself, then I've succeeded in my job. 
because yeah. I have now built up my my knowledge base and I've built up theirs. And now we have a, a community of people that are benefiting from this. That's like the only way I feel like people should think about leadership yeah. conceptually, right? It's like it's about a journey where you bring along um, uh, other people with you. Right. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you this because I just had to write an article um, about it for some company in Spain, actually. Um, Do you think that uh, COVID is going to like, do you think that there's a chance that you'll see like a scaling of soft skills out of it for two reasons is like what this company wanted me to try to postulate is like a if if companies were like cash strapped didn't have cash on hand you might see them in the next two years like invest in more automation Mm -hmm. and a lot of automation takes away hard skills like task based skills right so there's that as so they were basically trying to get me to say like if you want to future proof your career like double down on soft skills, which people have been saying for a long time, but then it's like coming out of COVID. If you see more automation, there's that. And then people being quote unquote, like cooped up on lockdowns or whatever, maybe there's going to be like an explosion of like empathy and connection. So do you, I want to believe that. I also know that we like as in recruiting, there's so much, harder to assess right like it's so much easier to assess someone's hard skills so do you think that there's going to be a different like interplay between the two in the next couple years in your mind I think I think what's going to happen I actually just talked about this the other day um because I am an extreme extrovert like going into COVID about three weeks in of stay home stay safe in my state we um I realized how much of an extrovert I was when I literally started craving being stuck in a stuffy conference room for five hours whiteboarding. Right. And the people that flourished were the introverts. And I've been saying this for a long time that extroverts get ahead because we're loud mouths. We don't get ahead because we're any more brilliant than introverts. And I think what we're going to see through this isn't so much a soft skill situation, but I think we're going to start respecting the people that are capable of doing work alone, AKA the introvert. Um, I need people stimulation to do my job and people that can do this type of job without this level of people stimulation, that's what we're going to see. So if you want to categorize that as a soft skill, um, categorize it as a soft skill. But I think companies are finally going to start seeing a different communication strategy with people. And I think it's leveling the playing field between the loud mouths like me and the people that have a tornado in their head, but only speak up when it's absolutely warranted. Um, And I'm glad for that because uh, some of the things that people don't realize is some of the best salespeople I've ever worked with were introverts. People are like, how can that be? It's like, because they're really good at listening. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I I would be, that's, I don't know, again, that it's going to be so much soft skills. I really think it's going to be, there's going to be a personality that's going to flourish as a result of this. And people will start recognizing the value of someone who doesn't think out loud, doesn't have to be in a room with other people, knows how to collaborate, knows how to get information, but knows how to go back to their hidey hole and produce. 